If you would, take out your Bibles with me and turn to Mark's Gospel, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 4. One of my uh, professors in seminary uh, reminded us that um, in addition to going to the Bible, we need to go to the author of the Bible before we study to ask God to do the work that only he can do in giving us understanding and a growing desire to put his word into practice. And so let's indeed go to the Lord in prayer before we take a look together at his word. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, help us see, Lord, help us learn. Holy Spirit, from its pages, lead the way. Come and melt our stubborn will. Make our hearts and souls be still. As we read your word, may we heed it and obey. Amen. Well, we have gotten all the way to week number 16 in Jesus according to the Bible and exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And I want to start out today by reading verses 33 and 34, because here is Mark's conclusion of Jesus' use of parables. Verse 33 of Mark chapter 4. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. In other words, Mark is saying Jesus used a lot of parables, but Mark has chosen to include just a few to, for his purposes. Uh, think with me to the end of the Gospel of John. John writes, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Here we see Jesus saying, or Mark saying, that Jesus didn't speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And indeed, in a way, Jesus, as we are gathered in his name to listen to him speak through his word, he is explaining everything to us, everything that we need to know for life and godliness. Indeed, he says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. And today, we're going to explore two. Here we are in the gospel according to Mark. And Mark is one of the four witnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus. Children, when you're young, you memorize the order, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And have you ever thought about the importance that that places on who Jesus is? That God included four witnesses Four windows into the life and ministry of Jesus so that we would know him. And indeed, we've been saying week after week after week, Mark is organized for a purpose. He has structured his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus to really do three things. To make it known who Jesus is, make it known what Jesus came to do, and make it known how someone should respond to the person and work of Jesus. And in Mark, you will not see many, in fact, not many at all, unless they're coming directly from Jesus, 
uh, commands of do this or do that, but what we are observing is how people, whether it's his family, the religious leaders, the tax collectors, uh, people with various diseases, how they are responding to Jesus. And we've been saying also, when it comes to who is Jesus and what did he come to do, we can say that in a nutshell, that Jesus is the king who brings with him the kingdom of God. Now, we hear this expression in Mark quite often, the kingdom of God, but if we went to Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven, but it's the same thing. In Mark 10, 15, we, we see that the kingdom of God is something that you enter. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God as something being received and something being entered. And we also see in Scripture that the kingdom of God is something that you cannot see until you are born again. In Mark, excuse me, in John 3, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But early in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we've already seen this announcement. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Is it, it's at hand, it's near, it's arriving. Therefore, this kingdom of God is something that has, or at least should have, an increasing influence. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy rule be established here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when we think about the kingdom of God, it's important to orient ourselves mainly to the whole of Scripture. We think of the Old Testament is the promised kingdom or the coming kingdom. And then with the arrival of Jesus, you have the present kingdom or the commencement of the kingdom. And then with his return or his second advent, you have the perfected kingdom or the consummation of the kingdom. For those of you that like alliteration, you can think of the kingdom of God as promised, present, and perfected, or coming, commenced, and consummated. Well, where are we living now in this, this um, picture of the kingdom of God? Well, we are living in the middle between the already and the not yet. Jesus has come, but he has not yet returned. We are living in the in-between period between the two advents of Jesus Christ. We're living in the in-between times. So let me ask you right now, how are you doing today? I mean, the already and the not yet has a healthy tension, but there's also an unfulfillment to it as well. Well, how, how are you doing? I mean, if, if you went to the doctor or the dentist or the financial advisor or the auto mechanic and said, you know, check out my body, check out my teeth, check out my finances, check out my, my, the condition of my car. If you went, as it were, before the Lord to get a spiritual checkup, how are you doing today, right now? For many of us, and I am certainly no exception to this rule, uh, there's sometimes a low-grade discouragement. It's not active or acute, but it's just there, humming along in the background. And with that low-grade discouragement is a lack of assurance. 
a lack of confidence. And that's one reason why we spent so much time in in 1 John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So when you look through the window at the world, what do you see? Are you discouraged right now when you read the news, watch the news, listen to the news? Well, let's back it back a little bit. How about the church in America? Is there a little bit of low-grade discouragement as you look through the window around you? How about, again, the, the mirror? Looking into the mirror at your own life, what do you see? Confidence? Assurance? <coughs> discouragement? Well, I'm pretty confident that our text will help all of us. It'll help correct our vision, adjust our thinking, and promote confidence. Confidence in the kingdom of God. Well, for those of you that get the preparing for worship email, do you remember what I suggested in the one I sent out this past Friday? Reading Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34, and trying to come up with two words or expressions that describe the growth of the kingdom of God. In other words, the growth of the kingdom of God is blank and blank. Anybody do that fill in the blank test? Well, here's what I came up with growth in the kingdom of God is mysterious and amazing. Growth in the kingdom of God is mysterious and amazing. Well, let's unpack both of these descriptive words. The mysterious growth of the kingdom. Join with me as I read verses 26 through 29. And he, that is Jesus, said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This is known, as you might see in your Bibles, the parable of the seed growing. And of all the four Gospels, it's found only in Mark's Gospel. And this parable is up front an illustration. Look at that language. The kingdom of God is as if. And this parable is going to provide encouragement for Jesus' disciples in the midst of what cannot be discouragement as they see his family not understand, as they see the religious leaders reject, and as we will see as we continue to see Mark's gospel, we will see rejection after rejection after rejection. First, in terms of this mysterious growth, the kingdom of God grows beyond our comprehension beyond our understanding. We see it in verse 27. Here is blessed ignorance. 
You know, usually children were told that we need to find the answer. Here, it's blessed ignorance. Um, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Nevertheless, the seed, the word of God that's being scattered by Jesus, that will be scattered by his disciples and apostles, and that is continuing to be scattered by his church as his word is proclaimed, that seed, in that seed is life and force. Think with me to Paul's well-known statement in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul the apostle said, there is power in the word. In Peter, in 1 Peter 1 says this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And the author to the letter of the Hebrews speaks of the Word of God as being living and active. Here is this seed that we've already known from the previous parable of the sower is the Word of God. And it is being sown. And it is powerful. There is life in the seed. It grows beyond our comprehension. We don't know how it works. We were talking earlier this morning in our class on the effectual call. How the Holy Spirit works in the life of a person to draw them to faith in Christ. And we don't know how it happens. It's, there's an element of mystery to it. And here Jesus is talking about this mysterious element in the kingdom of God. Well, not only does it grow beyond our comprehension it grows beyond our control we see in verse 28 the earth produces by itself by itself now it was fun to, uh, to do this kind of word study because this is the original language word that we get our english word automatic so there is a relationship between the greek language and the english language automatic by itself. It's automatic. It's going to happen. There's no question. Um, everybody draw your attention. Everybody look at those words. The earth produces by itself. It's going to be automatic. It's happening, but you and I can't see it. It's below the surface. There's life in the seed. There's power in the seed. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. It's automatic. And we're going to explore that in a bit more. In other words, there may be a rallying cry out there that let's build the kingdom. Let's build the kingdom. My friends, we can't build the kingdom. God builds His kingdom. We witness and we are involved 
You know, there's a hymn that I grew up singing, Rise Up, O Men of God. Anybody remember that one? What a stirring hymn. But you know what? It doesn't show up in our Trinity hymnal. Interesting. It's got a line in there about the church, and it causes, calls men to rise up and make her great. My friends, we cannot make the church great. The church is great. It's the bride of Christ. It's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's the building of God. We recognize it and we live according to that. We, in this case, don't do the work. We don't build the kingdom. We don't make her great. She is great. But, as you see in this passage, the powerful word takes time to work. Therefore, what do we need? Children, if something's going to take a long, long, long time to happen, what do we need? Patience. Adults, what do we need? Patience. Yes, the patience of the farmer. You know, preachers like me, what do we want when we preach? We want immediate results, don't we? And you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you want in terms of Christ-likeness? Overnight, I heard it. DHL, overnight shipping, right? FedEx sanctification, right? We don't want uh, Pony Express sanctification. But that's what the Scriptures have for us. To be sure, there's a moment in time when we go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but it's a long road home, fraught with dangers, toils, and snares. But as we sing the grace that has brought us here thus far, it will lead us home. So have you pictured in the mind the farmer scattering the seed? He's just going about his daily work of what? Sleeping and getting up sleeping, getting up, sleeping and getting up. And what happens? Something is at work, isn't it? So here's my application for those of you like me who feel like the work of the kingdom of God is on your shoulders. For this church, for your family's life, for your own life. Are you ready for this word? And it's really, really important. This is what we're called to do based on this passage, based on understanding how the kingdom grows. You know what we're supposed to do? Are you ready? Relax. Take a nap. In fact, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Because in a sermon that I heard once on the theology of sleep, guess what's happening when you're sleeping? Who are you trusting? You're trusting someone other than yourself to hold up the world. Sleep. Take a nap. That's what the farmer is doing. And yet there is a production going on. Well, not only does it grow beyond our comprehension and grow um, uh, beyond our control, it's out of our control, it also grows and matures toward a harvest. Look with me again at verse 29, or verse 28. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, 
than the full grain in the ear. Slow and steady growth. Remember in our study in 1 John, he addresses stages of maturity. Little children, young men, fathers. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, also wrote a number of wonderful letters that have been published of all things called the letters of John Newton. And three of his most famous letters take this parable into account. And what he does is he writes these letters showing three successive though overlapping stages of spiritual development. Grace in the blade, he says where, that's where you desire to grow. You are anxious to grow now that you're a Christian. But then there's grace in the ear, when you, as you mature, you find more and more conflict between the things of God and your flesh, and there's a battle that goes on. But then finally, there's grace in the full grain, a time of contemplation where there is stable and simple assurance. And you see that generally in older people who have walked with the Lord for years. Harvest, harvest. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This is most likely a direct expression of the final day, the final judgment, the last judgment. Because in Joel chapter 3 verse 13 we read this, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. We read in Revelation 14 chapter 14 verse 15, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now to be sure that is a harvest on the one hand when those who don't know Christ will be sent to eternal and unending um, rightful punishment for their rejection of salvation in Christ and their desire to still do it their own way. But it will also be a wondrous, glorious day for those who are trusting in Jesus. It will be a harvest into that eternal day that knows no night. Around Thanksgiving time, we often sing hymn number 715, Come ye thankful people, come. And here's verse number four. Even so, Lord, quickly come to thy final harvest home. Gather thou thy people in, free from sorrow, free from sin. There forever purified in thy presence to abide. Come with all thine angels come. Raise the glorious harvest home. Mark is wanting us to know that Jesus is speaking about the harvest to come, where the, the seed that has been planted will have its effect, raising some people to everlasting life and some to everlasting death, as it were. Now, before we move on to this next section, I want to make a comment. Um, to be sure, we are called to be faithful, correct? The fruitfulness is up to the Lord, right? Isn't that right? We're called to be faithful. And I often hear this expression among fellow pastors, well, we're just supposed to sow seeds. And that's true. We are supposed to sow seeds. And, but it struck me is that, be, that forces us to ask the question, are the seeds we are sowing the word of God? 
Or are the seeds we are sowing just our best thoughts, our best ideas? Because again, this seed that's being sown by this farmer, it's automatic. It's going to happen. So the challenge is for us as individuals, as families, as a church, to sow not just seeds, but to sow the seed of the word. Because Isaiah is right That word that goes out will not come back empty-handed. It will accomplish all the purposes for which it was sent out. Well, the parable of the growing seed illustrates the mysterious growth of the kingdom. Jesus and his ministry of his preaching, remember, will be opposed. The same will be true for his disciples as they follow his pattern. Nonetheless, the kingdom of God is unstoppable. The word of the kingdom inevitably will bear fruit. Now Jesus moves to another parable, the parable of the mustard seed, in order to illustrate the amazing growth of the kingdom. Again, this is known as the parable of the mustard seed, and it's also found in Matthew and Luke. And this parable is an illustration, but in particular, it's a comparison with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shades. It's a comparison. Because the kingdom of God is invisible, we have to set our eyes on something that is visible. Jesus said, it's like this. And it's providing reassurance in the midst of possibly a loss of assurance on the behalf of the disciples. And this is the climax of Jesus' teaching in Galilee. Next week, we'll be on a boat heading across the sea. And it's in the context of mounting rejection by the religious leaders. Now the way I want to look at this passage here is to look at the theology of the kingdom. The theology of the kingdom. There is a, um, a prayer that we say at our dinner table fairly often. And many of you probably grew up with this and maybe use it now. God is great and God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. Anybody use that? My friends, God is great and God is good. If we can hold those two things together the rest of our lives, it'll be, it'll be still a difficult journey, but remembering God's greatness alongside His goodness, it will help keep us on the road because here we see the future greatness of the kingdom because the end is all out of proportion from its beginning the word looks looks insignificant but there's an inauspicious beginning but a very public and visible conclusion this is a way of echoing the words of the old testament that say do not despise the day of small things and my friends our society do you know what our society does It despises the day of small things. Small is bad. Big is good. Few is bad. Many is good. 
Jesus is drawing our attention to that proverbial Jewish expression about the mustard seed being the smallest seed, and yet it grows up to be the biggest plant, the biggest tree. He's using something familiar to them. What begins in obscurity will end in glory. A few weeks ago when we were looking at the calling of the apostles, I was reminded of the book 12 Ordinary Men, uh, where the author looks at the lives of these fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and others who became this band of brothers following Jesus. Well, my mind was drawn to the attention of the poem written in 1926 called One Solitary Life. Has anybody heard of One Solitary Life? It goes something like this, and I won't read it all, but it goes like this. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things, usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. One solitary life. But then it continues. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Of course... Jesus. But you can multiply that illustration in many ways, can't you? What starts small ends up big. Not only is the future of the kingdom great, but the future of the kingdom is good. Look with me at the future goodness of the kingdom. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. Why? So that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Now when the people heard this, they most likely thought back to the prophet Ezekiel, who writes in Ezekiel 17, Beginning in verse 22, these words. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every branch, every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. 
I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Jesus' original hearers would have heard this and seen that this tree that grows up is growing up from the tiny remnant of Israel that God would preserve and it will shelter the nations. God has promised that Israel will become a tree that will bless the nations. Because what is it doing? It's providing shade. Shade from what? It's a refuge from sin and death for all kinds of people. The psalmist writes in Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The shade of this tree will enable all kinds of people from all over the earth to find rest and security and eternal satisfaction under its branches. The kingdom of God is presently good, but my friends, it will also be forever and eternally good as we move toward that day. Well, at the time of the harvest, the time when the sickle is swung, none of us will care one bit how long the crop took to mature. My friends, God is patient now. He's calling people to repentance and faith. One day that call will end and the other call will be issued and that is come home. Come home or depart from me. Growth. It's both mysterious and amazing. The kingdom of God and the church of God. An insignificant beginning followed by imperceptible progress and concluded with immeasurable success. Whether it's grace and peace, whether it's the church in North America, whether it's the worldwide church, insignificant beginning, imperceptible progress. You look around and... Is anything happening? Well, if the word of God is getting out to people, you bet something is happening. And it's concluded with immeasurable success to such that God alone gets glory. Well, let's conclude by going back to the title and making a couple of comments as to how these two parables help adjust our gaze from our circumstances to our center. What do I mean when I, I wrote the expression confidence in the kingdom? What I meant was this, living confidently in the kingdom of God as a citizen of the kingdom. But what we really need to say is this, confidence in the kingdom is not out there some impersonal thing. No, confidence in the kingdom is very personal because it's confidence in the king. Why do we love the kingdom of God? Why are we going to sing in just a moment, I love thy kingdom, Lord? Why? Because we love the king. My friends, these two parables are told by Jesus, but they're also about Jesus. 
Confidence in the kingdom is nothing less than confidence in Jesus. And my friends, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion. You may look at your life right now and say, I am not where I want to be, but guess what? You are not where you once were. And you're not yet where you're going to be. You're on the road. And it's a road right now of walking by faith and not by sight. Of, as it were, being fed the word of God and praying and asking God to bring it to full flower in your life. Here we are, Jesus preaching in a boat on the side of the sea. And yet our attention has been drawn to farming. Be encouraged, church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be assured and have quiet, humble confidence in the power of God's word and spirit to do what you and I could never do. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two pictures of your kingdom that help us to see that its growth is both mysterious and yet amazing. Father, thank you for the reassurance that it's beyond our comprehension as well as beyond our control. So Father, would you enable us more and more to put our lives, our fortunes, and as it were, our sacred honor into your hands knowing that what we need to do is not declare a declaration of independence from you, but rather more and more declare our dependence upon you. Father, would you be pleased to continue to enable us to plant and water, but may you be pleased to produce the growth, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.